desires to speak to us. Now we've already had a time with him at his table. Where we've been able to express our worship to him. Now he wants to bless us by speaking to us. You know, brothers and sisters, he alone has the words of eternal life. And he wants to speak to us. He doesn't want somebody to speak for him. He wants to speak himself. And he has chosen to use a situation like this. So the dimension of our meeting has changed. Now it's him speaking to us. So as I mentioned, the Holy Spirit has to convey our Lord's words to us. And he has a great challenge because he has to use a human vessel to speak his word. And then we have to trust the Lord to use our brother to translate. And so we need the mercy of the Lord. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But you know, brothers and sisters, that's not the end of his speaking. I mean, a sad, it would be a sad thing if all he did was speak and there was no one to listen and no one to respond to what he said. It would mean that our time would be useless. So you know he's going to be utterly faithful. And we're trusting that in the mercy of God, we will be able to be vessels that he can use. But before we trust him to speak to us, Let's set aside all the distractions. Now you know, dear brothers and sisters, there's enough problems going on in our life to last a long time. But now is the time for you to set all of those aside. The sovereign Lord of the universe has something he wants to say to each one of us. So let's open our hearts. Let's pay attention to what he has to say with the understanding that we will obey, that we won't just be hearers of the word, but by the grace of God, we will, we will seek to put into practice Act upon what he says. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that once again you have given us this great privilege to be with you at your table. And Lord, we ask you to add your blessing to our worship. So that we'll be worthy of you. And we thank you now that as we come to this time, our living Lord desires to speak to us. Lord, we desperately need for you to speak. 
Because as we have mentioned, you have the words of eternal life. And Lord, we need a fuller measure of your life. And so we're coming before you. Humbling ourselves. Acknowledging how much we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That same anointing that was poured out on your head. Will come and envelop us here this morning. Now, Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we're trusting that your grace will be doing a work in our hearts. So that as you speak, we'll be able to hear and also have the grace to put into practice. So we sit here before you as your servants this morning and say to you, Blessed Lord, speak because your servants are listening. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I think many of us have a sense that the Lord is trying to get us to be aware of his soon return. But brothers and sisters, I think it's important we understand that we remember that there are some other things that have happened that were absolutely necessary in order for the Lord to return. First, he had to come. And so, it's important for us as the Lord's children to have as much clarity as possible about the incarnation when the eternal Son of God was born into the human race in, a, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is not our focus this morning. But I think it's important we understand that this is a this is a necessary part of the last thing that needs to happen. The last thing's going to happen is our Lord is going to return. But he had to come first. And so first of all it's important we understand the necessity of the incarnation. It is also very necessary that we are clear that his coming included a crucifixion and a burial and a resurrection. To me, the incarnation was the first greatest event in human history. Now, I know that God had to already create man. But man had made a big mess of God's creation. So there was a need for him to recover. A need for him to restore. And his great wisdom dictated that his own son had to become a human being and enter into the human experience. But then he needed to be crucified. So that's the second thing. That is including the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. 
Without this, there is no salvation. There is no hope for us. All of our human effort would be a total waste. So it was necessary for our Lord Jesus to come, to be crucified, to be buried, and to be resurrected. So that was the second thing. The third thing was that he was exalted. He was he ascended and he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Now this was a necessary step as well. It's not something uh, optional. It's an absolute necessary step in God's work. So after our Lord was crucified, after he was buried, after he was resurrected, he then ascended back to the Father's right hand. He was exalted. Do we are we clear this morning, my dear brothers and sisters? That for two thousand years, our exalted Lord Jesus has been reigning over everything in the God's universe. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Why? Because as we sang about this morning, he is the only one worthy to receive this authority. He is fully capable of receiving this authority and executing it perfectly according to his Father's will. That's why he could go and take that scroll out of him who sat on the throne, out of his hand. And he began to execute the will of God. So, brothers and sisters, for 2,000 years, hallelujah, there has been a man seated at the right hand of God. He's been there in this position of majesty, of highest authority, and he's been ruling over everything that goes on in God's universe, including what's going on in this planet. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that's happening here is God's will. But just because we refuse to do God's will, does not in any way affect the reality of Him being the Sovereign Lord. This was a decision that was made. Because He is the one who is worthy. And so He is there reigning and ruling. Totally. Absolutely. He is sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He allows us to do our own thing. He allows us to rebel. He allows us to refuse to do the will of God. But let's be clear. It's because of His sovereignty. He permits it. And so we need to be clear, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus Christ is seated in the highest position in the universe. Everything else is under 
His authority. He's been given the name that is above every other name. That is the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Now, eventually, that means every knee. Now we have to choose. And you and I can choose. And I trust this morning you have already chosen. That He is worthy of your obedience. And you have bowed your knee. And you confess with your mouth that He is your Lord. Now He is a sovereign ruler. You need to experience it for yourself. And then this can enable us to be prepared for His return. But brothers and sisters, there's another very, very important event. That after our Lord Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand, His first official act as the sovereign ruler of the universe was to send the Holy Spirit to this planet. So what we read in Acts chapter 2 is not just some event. It is an event. But it is a necessary event. If our Lord Jesus is going to return because we have already come to the place that he has come the first time, he finished his work on Calvary, he was resurrected, and he has, been, he has ascended. But he ascended there with the intention of coming back to this planet. Because he's going to set up his kingdom perfectly. First, he's going to do it for a thousand years. He's going to establish the kingdom of God in reality here on this planet. But brothers and sisters, another step had to take, be taken. The Holy Spirit needed to be sent. So the day of Pentecost was a necessary step in God's work. Without Pentecost, there cannot be a second coming. As a matter of fact, without Pentecost, the finished work of the Lord Jesus could not be experienced. Even when he died there on the cross and said, it is finished, we could not experience it until the Holy Spirit was sent to bring it to us here on this earth. And so, brothers and sisters, what do you think we can do to be better prepared for our Lord's return? Well, I, I want to suggest to us this morning that one important thing we can do is get clear about the Incarnation. Let the Holy Spirit un open your understanding to what was happening. Not just some doctrinal teaching. But something, a truth that wraps itself around your heart. And it begins to influence the way you think. What about the crucifixion? How clear are you about what God was doing there? I think many of us understand that when the Lord Jesus died there, it was for the forgiveness of our sin. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. But that's not all he was doing. He was doing a work on Calvary. Listen carefully, my brothers and sisters. 
Our Lord Jesus was doing a work on Calvary that made it possible for us to stop sinning. You know, sometimes we, we focus all our attention on forgiveness. And brother, how can we describe it? How can we share our appreciation? That God has provided a way to totally forgive us. Do you know this morning, dear child of God, that you have been forgiven and all of the things are forgotten? There's no more record. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No more record. I'm going to share with you an experience I had a number of years ago. With an elderly sister. And uh, she was sharing with me on one occasion. She had three children. She had two daughters and one son. And the son was the middle child. And she loved him better than she loved the two girls. Okay. Now, I think probably many moms could understand this. Okay? But the Lord convicted her. So she said to me, Ernie, a, a number of years ago, I saw that this was wrong, and I asked the Lord to forgive me, and all during these last 10 or 12 years, every night, I have asked the Lord to forgive me. Now doesn't that sound so spiritual, so wonderful? But it reveals a lack of understanding. She's not living in the truth. You know what happened that first night? She confessed her sin. God forgave her, but he also forgot. So when she kept on, kept on confessing the sin, even the Lord didn't know what she was talking about. Now, is this real to you? Brothers and sisters, it's important we understand. But it's also important to understand that there was a great work that was being accomplished by our Lord Jesus. You don't have to go on sinning. Now, there's only one way that you can keep a sinner from sinning. You know what that, what that way is? You put him to death. The only kind of sinner that doesn't sin is a dead one. And hallelujah, hallelujah, we were crucified with him. When he was crucified, we were crucified. What, what, would, what did you understand was happening when you were being baptized in water? You should have been having a funeral service for that old man. And it ought to be reality in your heart this morning. So that when you are tempted to sin, you now have a, a place to stand. And say, I refuse to sin. Oh man, you are in a death position. I refuse to obey you. And there's a new life inside of you. The life of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And He never sinned. He cannot sin. And if you let Him live through your life, you will not sin. Hallelujah. Amen.
Not many loud amens on that one. Had some loud amens about the forgiveness. But no loud amens about not be, not necessary to sin. Dear children of God, do you think for one second that it brings joy to your Heavenly Father's heart when you continue to sin. I know if we sin, we're supposed to confess our sin. But when we sin, we ignore. We overlook a part of the finished work of our Lord Jesus. And it doesn't bring joy to your Heavenly Father. You have to keep on forgiving us. Now, let's be very clear. As long as you and I are living in this physical body, there will always be the temptation and the possibility of sinning. But I want us to understand this morning, dear child of God, that when our Lord Jesus was crucified, that old sinner that's living inside of us has been crucified. supposed to be there in the water. Let's suppose I died. And you all came to the funeral. And you saw me laying there in the casket. No question, Ernie's dead. He's not moving, he hasn't moved for days. He's dead. Then you all go to the cemetery. And they have this hole dug in the ground. And they close the box and put me in the hole. And then they cover over the ground. Ernie is in the ground. Three days later, your husband or your wife says, you have a telephone call. Ernie wants to talk to you. Are you going to answer the telephone? Now we laugh, brothers and sisters, but this is where it becomes real for us. Because we're always going to be tempted. But what would you do? If this actually happened, what would you do? Well, I want to encourage you uh, about what I think you should do. You, you say to your husband or wife, I'm not interested in talking to that guy. He's dead. And so when sin comes, knocking on our door. The sinner is dead. The sinner is dead. You don't have to respond. This is part of the salvation of our God. And then we have His great resurrection. Someone has suggested that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest work that God ever did. And I'm slowly getting to that place myself. He overcame God's great enemy. He overcame our enemy. You remember the words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall never die. So brothers and sisters, and even if you live and die, you don't have to be concerned about it. Because there is a victory. 
So this is a necessary thing for us to understand. And then this issue of Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's be very clear, brothers and sisters. He is none other than God Himself. Let's let's go get a corner someplace. And sit there in that corner with the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit make very clear to us who He is, who the Holy Spirit is. Because in most of our minds, we, we, we put God as Trinity, He put the Father on top. And we put the Son in the middle. And we put the Holy Spirit on the bottom. What is wrong with that? Because it's not true. It's not true, brothers and sisters. If you're going to put them in some position, don't put the Father top, Son second, and Holy Spirit third. Put them side by side. God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three equally God. The Father is not more God than the Spirit. The Son is not more God than the Spirit. He is equally God. So what we have is another incarnation. The first incarnation was the Son. But now we have another incarnation. The Holy Spirit has incarnated in the beginning 120 believers. He came and took up residence in their life. And he began this work of building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of making preparation for the Lord to come back. So I hope we are clear this morning, your brothers and sisters. That this matter of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, is not optional. It is a necessary, important part of God's work. And you and I need to be clear about it. And we need to be open to receiving all that the Holy Spirit brought us. Anything and everything He wants to do. Individually, collectively in the world we need to be open but here is one of the problems God has chosen to use human vessels it just seems to me brothers and sisters that what brings God the greatest satisfaction is to use human beings to do his work now you know he doesn't need us. He's God. I don't know what you mean by the word God. But my understanding of God is he can do anything, anytime, any way he wants to. And he, he doesn't need anybody to do it. Is that clear to you? Are you clear? <laughs> he is God. What do you mean by God? Some superhuman being? Somebody who's a little bit bigger than you are? Oh, brothers and sisters, that's not the God of this Bible. And it's not the God who was revealed in the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, the person of our Lord Jesus. He is God. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. He is the eternal God. He can do anything, anytime, any way He chooses to do. But He has chosen 
to you human beings. Which is an amazing, amazing thing to me. You see what kind of problems he's created for himself. When he chose to use human beings. Now, you know that initially he created man. And you can be absolutely clear, brothers and sisters, that Adam was a perfect creation. There was not one thing in Adam that displeased God, that was in any sense a failure. He was perfect, but he wanted this man to be an agent, to be a, a vehicle. A way where he could bring his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, and make it a full reality on this planet. Now, when I read my scriptures, what has come to me is that when you look out through the whole universe, and I, I trust you know it's a big universe, and we're discovering more and more about this, I think it's almost infinite. Because I believe God continues to create. Sorry about my heritage. Okay? But it's a big universe. And they've been taking pictures of this great universe. And I would encourage you if you have any inclin any indication you want to go this direction. Find some of this information, some of these pictures that they have taken. There's recently a, a DVD called The Indescribable. Have you seen it? Well, how would you describe it? What word would you use to describe that DVD? Huh? Indescribable, right? <laughs> it's wonderful. Because they take pictures of the universe that is impossible for man to see. But you know, brothers and sisters, I'll tell you what happened to me. My appreciation and my understanding of God grew wonderfully. When I saw those pictures. But here's the interesting thing. When we begin in our scriptures, and we go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, it seems there's only one place in God's whole universe where there's a problem. You notice the scriptures did not say that God so loved Mars that he sent his only begotten son. Or he didn't say God so loved Jupiter. His focus is on this earth. In the beginning, he created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And so, all that we, the record we have in the scriptures is a record of God taking this rebellious planet who is un, which is under the control of his archenemy. Everything that God has been doing is to bring back his government to this planet. And you remember in Genesis chapter 1? After God restored this universe, or this planet, so where man could live here, then God said, let us make man. 
Let us create a being. I hope you see, brothers, this is something that had never been before. There had been angels, there had been in the universe, but there had never been a man. And God's heart was to create a man, a human being, that would represent him here on this planet. And what did he want this man to do? To subdue and to rule. To, to demonstrate God's government here. And so that's why it brings great joy to God, uh, for, for, to our Father, to be able to use human beings. So, brother and sister, can I ask you a question? Why does God love you? Because you're such a lovely person. Why did He save you? Because you were going to hell. That was part of it. But I don't think it was the important part. God has a work He's doing. And he wants you to be one of his co-workers. This is a big part of our salvation. Now, I know we normally don't think about this. But this is God's heart. To have human beings who have surrendered their will to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who have bowed their knee and confessed him as their Lord. And then to have an assembly of people. An assembly of these people who will bow their knee. Who know in practical reality what it means for Jesus to be the head of his church. Now you notice I didn't say that needed to understand the, the doctrinal teaching. I think probably if we went to every assembly on the face of the earth, and we ask, do you believe that Jesus is head of the church? What answer would you think we would get? What answer would we get? Yes. But then you say, can we have a little bit of evidence? Is that the wrong question to ask? Huh, brother? Is that the wrong question to ask? If, if you declare that Jesus is your Lord, then I, I have a right to look for some evidence. Remember Matthew chapter 7? Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, if I say to you that Jesus is my Lord, then you have a right to find some evidence to prove it. You agree, brothers and sisters? You agree? Okay, so let's take it over to the assembly now. If we say that Jesus is the head, in terms of authority, do you think there ought to be evidence that he is the head? I think it needs to be a reality. From my perspective, brothers and sisters, I think every problem we have among us as God's people is directly related to this issue. We have acted independently of Him. 
那你所分分开来的就是他们要洗脚。那你认为他们做什么呢？They now I understand our life, okay? I'm not being, But be sure. It brings sadness to his heart. Put yourself in his position. He is seated in that position where he sees everything, he knows everything. And especially in his church. When you read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and chapter 1, where is the Lord? He's walking amongst the seven golden lampstands. He's walking among His church. And what is He doing? I know your works. I know your deeds. I've been looking. I have these eyes of penetrating fire. I can see behind all the facade. I know the reality. So brothers and sisters, for us to say that Jesus is the head of his church, there should be practical evidence to prove it. And we have a lot of evidence to prove just the opposite. So may the Lord be merciful to us. But let's focus for a few moments on this matter of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few verses in Ephesians chapter 2. 
I trust you have discovered the Ephesian letter. In my estimation, it is the highest revelation that God has given. And I trust you have discovered it. If you have not, may I as your brother encourage you to discover it. Now I want us to focus for a few moments. In chapter 2. Because of the little bit of time we have. Let's just begin in verse 13 of chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near, I'm sorry, who were formerly brought uh, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 14。For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall。By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man. Let's just focus for a moment on that one phrase. So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man. I would like for us to fellowship some now for for what moments we have left. About this one new man. We already mentioned that back in Genesis. It says that God created man. In his own image and according to his own likeness. But when you get to Genesis chapter 6, this man whom God created, when you get to Genesis chapter 6, this perfect man whom God had created has fallen so far down. He has become something that was a disgrace and a, and a, a great ache in God's heart resulted because of what man did. You know what he says? The thoughts and the intents of man's heart were constantly evil. And God said, I'm sorry I ever made man. Twice he said that. Now, brothers and sisters, let's think for a moment. What was in God's heart when he spoke those words? You think he was angry? Yeah, there may have been some of that. But I think there was tremendous sadness. Because of God's intention, God's goal, God's destiny for this man. 
So the first man became an utter failure. And God had been working for many, many years. Trying to find a way to recover this man. And so he gave the law. He sent the prophets. He had made covenant relationships with the Jewish people. All is a way of trying to complete this work. Of setting up his kingdom here on this planet. You know that's what he wanted for Israel. For the descendants of Abraham. He wanted them to be a kingdom. Priests unto him. This was always his heart. But we know there was failure. And so God found a way. And this is what is involved in the incarnation. God in His Son through the incarnation and the crucifixion. God is doing a work. So you notice here that he says about our Lord Jesus. So that he himself might make the two into one new man. Now notice it's a new man. Still man. And this new man is the byproduct of our Lord Jesus as man. Now you notice here that Paul talks about two groups. Who were the two groups? Jews and Gentiles. You can go back to the earlier part of chapter 2. And you discover that God took both the Gentiles and the Jews who were all dead in their trespasses and sins. And he did a work that Paul describes as his masterpiece. Now, I had to be careful because I would like for us to have fellowship about this. The word is, he says, we are his workmanship. Who is the we? Jews and Gentiles. You know in the mind of Jewish people. Only two groups of people in the world. If you're not a Jew, you are what? A Goyim. A Gentile. You're a Gentile. And you know the Jews had no relationship with Gentiles. But in our Lord Jesus, God has broken down the, the dividing wall, the barrier between them. And we find in Galatians, for example, that in Christ there are no Jews nor Gentiles. So this new man is still a man, but he's a new man with a new head. The first Adam was created out of the earth. He was earthy. You find it in 1 Corinthians 15. But the second man came from heaven. 
He's a heavenly man. So this new man that our Lord Jesus is creating is not an earthly man. He's a heavenly man. A new man. With new life. With royal blood flowing in his veins. And brothers and sisters, please, for the sake of God's heart being satisfied, let's get it clear. What happened to you when you believed in the Lord Jesus? Yes, you had your sins forgiven. There are no more record of it. Yes, you were crucified with him. But hallelujah, my brothers and sisters, you were put into this new man. You've now been put into him. And he is in you, and you are in him. You are a part of this new man. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to see this. We have taken this new man and and focused only on him becoming earthly. We we do earthly things. And we put heavenly names on them. And we think that that somehow makes them heavenly. Oh, brothers and sisters, you remember the Lord's conversation with Nicodemus? You must be born from above, Nicodemus. Heaven must come and enter into your being before you can see and before you can enter into the kingdom. It's absolutely necessary. Our Lord Jesus said, a must. So if it's a must, there are no exceptions. There are no other ways. There is no other way. And so it's necessary that heaven invade our lives. And it's also necessary, brothers and sisters, that we get some clarity about what the Lord wants to do among us as His assembly. What is the Lord trying to do? Just gather a group of people together here on the earth and let them do so-called Christian things? No, my brothers and sisters. We are to become a new man. A new humanity. A humanity that manifests Christ in the world. The world, those who do not know the Lord Jesus should be able to look at us corporately and see a manifestation of this new man. So what we find in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks about this new man becoming a mature man. In chapter 4, we are to become a mature man. And the Lord has provided a way to do this. Now we don't have time this morning to, to fellowship about it. But our Lord in His great wisdom has found a way to take the old Adam, put him to death, resurrect him, with the life of Christ and then begin to build the character of His Son. This is what the church is supposed to be. It's not just a group of good people getting together. It's not just a group of forgiven people getting together. We are to become the body of Christ through which Christ manifests the reality And so it means there has to be evidence. When we say that Jesus is the head, 
He's the head of a new man. Now you you cannot, brothers and sisters, think that there's a difference between what is in the head and what is in the body. The same life that you have in your head, you have in the members of your body. You can't have one kind of life here and another life in the members of the body. So the same life that's in him, he wants to impart to the members of the body. When do you become a member of this body? When do you become a member of the church? When you go before a committee? A membership committee, and they ask you questions about your doctrine and your experience. Is that how you become a member? Not in the Lord's church. The moment you believe in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into that body. You are a member. If you're a real believer, if you had a real experience with the Lord, then you're already a member. The question is, what kind of a member are you? Functioning or non-functioning? Rebellious or obedient? But you are a member. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a difference this would make in the Lord doing His work if every one of us were clear about this because you know if you're a non-functioning member then you make it more difficult for the functioning members they not only have to do their work they have to do yours too oh may the Lord help us to see that our Lord is creating a new man a new humanity, a mature man, according to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now you remember Paul's definition of the church in chapter 1? Uh, what, what is your definition? What is your definition of the church? You need to have one. You need to be clear about it. You're a part of it. Why shouldn't you be informed? Why shouldn't you have revelation? And be able to share with your own words what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. I suggest to us that at least we give a good serious consideration to Paul's definition. Chapter 1. The church which is his body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. Did you hear, brothers and sisters? The church which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. I don't think there's a better definition. I'm, I'm, I'm open to hearing yours. You're going to have to come up with a good one. The church is to be a a means why the Lord Jesus, how the Lord Jesus can manifest the fullness of Himself. Let's take this neighborhood where, where, the, where, where you're having the meeting. Or the neighborhood where some of you live. What does that neighborhood need more than anything else? They need to see Jesus. And one of the ways He should be manifested is through our life together as His people. 
We have a new life in us. We have a different life in us. We have a divine life in us. We have an overcoming life in us. We have a resurrection life in us. And we have a life that provides hope for millions of people. But what's happening? We keep it all locked up among ourselves. Oh, brothers and sisters. May the Lord help us. We've been called to this. This is not a volunteer organization. The Church of the Lord Jesus never, I mean, the Lord Jesus never asked for any volunteers. It's true, he said, if. So, but he wasn't asking for volunteers. Because you remember the qualifications if you answer the if. If any man would be my disciple. Huh? So it's not a volunteer thing. You've been called. And the question for us, individually and together, is are we hearing the call? Are we obeying the call? So you remember in chapter 4, in the Ephesian letter, after Paul has offered two marvelous prayers for these Ephesian believers. And after he shared with them the great revelation, there's a therefore. <laughs> when you see a therefore, brothers and sisters, you need to ask, why is it therefore? And this is a strong therefore. Therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. And he particularly focuses on this issue of <coughs> maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And you notice he gives us seven ones. Verse starting in verse four. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So what is he what is he emphasizing? Well, how many bodies of Christ are there? Your answer, please. Is that reality? Is that the way it is today? Huh? That is a spiritual reality. But it's not the heavenly man. What is happening is the earthly man is putting his hands on the heavenly man and in doing so they have prevented our Lord Jesus from fully manifesting himself. Now, brothers and sisters, the building of the church is a miracle. I don't know what your definition of a miracle is. But to me, a miracle is something that only God Himself can do. Now, that puts it, puts it pretty high. But that's my understanding. Who can build the church of the Lord Jesus? 
The Holy Spirit will take them and He will build something that brings joy to the heart of our blessed Lord who is the head of the church. But brothers and sisters, please let's be clear. None of us or all of us together cannot build the church. When we do, we build something that becomes an interference for the Lord. It gets in the way of the Lord building His church. If we have a false understanding of what the church is, and we give ourselves to building that, then it becomes a counterfeit. It becomes something other than the church. And we believe it's the church. But brothers and sisters, just because we call it the church, doesn't make it the church. The church is that what our Lord, what our Lord Jesus is building. It's something that comes out of Him by the Spirit and His life gets inside of individual members and then He brings them together and under Him being the head they begin to function. And through this function there's a manifestation of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read it in the book of Acts. Oh brothers, what, what a wonderful 30 years of history. I was having fellowship this week with a brother. And I think one of the things that's getting in our way we have too much technology. Do you know that the book of Acts became a reality and they had no cell phones? 
No computers, no cars, no airplanes, none of the technology we have today. And yet in that 30 year period, brothers and sisters, the world was turned upside down by simple believers who didn't know how to build the church. If you had gone to them and said, what's happening here? Let's suppose you were a newspaper reporter. <laughs> and you were there on the day of Pentecost. And some of those days afterwards. And you saw what was happening. But you didn't understand. So you're going to ask some of these people involved. So you go and stick the microphone in front of the What's happening here? We have no idea. They had no idea the Lord was building His church. They didn't use that language. Until later. Oh, brothers and sisters, you understand what I'm saying? If we want our Lord to come back, then the where, one of the places we need to focus our attention is, Lord, how can we become this new man? Where all the divisions are, are gone. There are no Jews or Gentiles. There are no males nor females. There are no slaves or free men. There are none of the races. You see, brothers and sisters, please forgive me. But my brothers and sisters, the evidence of Jesus is head. Is that when you have people from all different kind of races who are together and are living together and loving together and serving together, and then the Lord is able to manifest His food. Many times we think it's too expensive. It costs too much. But brother and sister, if we are unwilling to pay the price, then we'll have what we want. But our Lord will not have His church. And I know some of you brothers and sisters, and I know in your heart, you want Him to have His church. Why give your life? Why give your time? Why give your energy? If it's not going to build His church. So brothers and sisters, there's a call upon our lives to become this new man. Right here. In, in the New York area. I don't know how the Lord wants to do it. But I know He wants to do it. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Brothers and sisters, you have people from all over the world congregating here in this area. And it's a wonderful opportunity for the Lord to build His church. People from every tongue, every nation, every tribe brought together under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You can't explain it humanly. How do you explain the book uh, Acts chapter 2? When it says that they were all of one heart and one mind. Brothers, brothers and sisters, 3,120 Jewish people. Now some of you know Jewish people. And you, you need to know I'm not being critical or judgmental in any way. But the few Jewish people that I've known, you have two together. And you have a war. 3,120? All of one heart and one mind. How do you explain it? Only one way. A miracle. In my estimation, it's the greatest miracle we have in the book of Acts. That he took 3,120 Jews and built them together into a unit. 
They were of one heart and one mind. And the Lord was able to manifest Himself in ways He's never been able to do before. Brothers and sisters, He wants to do it here. But it's expensive. But my encourage this morning, my encouragement, ask the Lord to open our eyes to see the reality of this one new man. That you are a part of it. And we need to be willing to cooperate with you. Intelligently cooperate. That means a lot of dying on our part. We have to die to everything that's not of Christ. What is the church? The fullness of Him. You know why we don't have the fullness? Because there's too much of us. And it needs to die. So that there can be a manifestation of His fullness. My dear brothers and sisters, 95% of you, I don't know your name. Many of you have never met before. My brothers and sisters, please forgive me. But we are a part of the greatest thing happening in the universe. Our Heavenly Father is building His masterpiece. Taking people from every walk of life. All different kinds of people. And building his masterpiece. His workmanship. In my estimation, it's greater than his creation. It's greater than his salvation. Now, I know you say, there's another heresy already. Well, okay. But brothers and sisters, think about it. He has to take everybody who's ever been saved. And build them together into one. What do you think? Masterpiece? I think so, my The greatest thing God will ever do is take these millions and millions of people who believed in His Son and then build them together into a beautiful manifestation of Christ Himself. And then the Lord can come back because the bride is ready. Because when He looks at her, He's going to say things, the same thing Adam said. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. This is what he's looking for. Brothers and sisters, are we prepared to pay this kind of price? Or we want something that's good for us, something that's convenient for us? I'm going to tell you that I think the best thing you could do is have a few sleepless nights. When you stayed awake and let the Holy Spirit, you say, you know what that, that guy was sharing on Sunday morning? Is there anything to this? Or is he just preaching? You find out for yourself. And you'll find out, my dear brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit will meet you. We are a part of the greatest thing happening in the universe. Let's live accordingly. Let our lives manifest reality. That you have been so honored by God to be a part of His great work. And it requires a full committal of our lives.
May God be merciful. Let's pray. One of some of you brothers and sisters